Let us open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes, the seventh chapter. Ecclesiastes, chapter seven. Thank you, brothers, for reading those precious passages of Scripture. We're going to get to that subject in just a moment. What a man Abraham was. Oh, that we can be men like Abraham and not just shadows of him, but as be, be as close to him as we can be. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. There is a dividing point in the book of Ecclesiastes between the 6th and 7th chapters. As Solomon turns to a great degree from proving that all things are vanity to giving us some wise remedies on how to live. And we have covered down through the 18th verse, and the 18th verse ended so well. It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Last Sunday and this Sunday, the emphasis is on the fear of the Lord and walking in His ways. If you step outside of His ways, you are going down from the inside out and from the outside in. The Lord is going to tear you apart. There is no way that you can live successfully, happily in this world without doing it His way. He is going to mess you up. And the more you know about His Word, the more He's going to mess you up. The more you know about His Word doesn't give you liberty the more you know about His Word gives you responsibility. Because to whom much is given, much shall be required. The next lesson that we want to cover is in verses 19 through 22. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Also, take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. Here is some wisdom. This is wisdom to be able to deal with God and with men. I'm only going to spend a few minutes on it. I don't think there's much here that is complicated to you, and I hope that we can lay hold of it. In the first verse, wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. What a high, lofty statement for wisdom. And it ought to provoke us. We should want to be wise. When we read about ten mighty men, it doesn't matter how they are mighty. They could be mighty in athletic or physical accomplishments. They could be mighty in military accomplishments. They could be mighty in business accomplishments. They could be wealthy. They could be mighty in educational attainments. They could be mighty in academia. It doesn't matter where they're mighty. A man with wisdom is strengthened and advantaged more than all ten of them put together. Therefore, wisdom is something we want to get our hands on. And wisdom is something you have to seek. You have to work for. You have to pray for. You have to read for. You have to think about and exercise your senses to discern good and evil in every situation in life to be a wise man. To apply the Bible to your entire life and all parts of it. Now the wisdom that is here in this verse, the first word is wisdom. This wisdom is not to be divorced from the context that we've just covered. Though I have drawn a faint line between verses 18 and 19, it's just to gather verses together into bite-sized chunks for you. The wisdom that is here is the wisdom of understanding God's providence. 
which is verses 13 through 15, and it is the wisdom of knowing not to go to extremes in your Christianity. And that doesn't mean to be extremely holy for God. It means to be extreme in a man-made ditch of man-made righteousness and man-made wisdom and man-made holiness. That is what the wisdom here is. It's the wisdom of the context. The first word of the next verse helps us toward that end because it's a four. It's a coordinating conjunction connecting verses 19 and 20. Now, verse 20 sounds like it belongs in Romans chapter 3. But it's a statement about total depravity given by the Apostle Paul to the Roman saints. But it's not in Romans 3. It's right here and it starts out with the word 4 because it's connecting verses 19 and 20. That helps us understand what kind of wisdom is under consideration. See, there's a type of person that thinks that they can be perfect before God by their own works and efforts. We read about them in Colossians chapter 2 last Sunday, and I don't want to take the time, but remember, they have rules like touch not, taste not, handle not, all of which are to perish with the using. They have a show of wisdom in will worship. What they mean is a measure of self-denial that goes beyond the Bible. There is self-denial that goes way beyond the Bible. Most religions have self-denial that goes beyond the Bible. When the Roman Catholics require celibacy and poverty on the part of all their ministers, both priests and nuns and all others that, are, that take part of the, the sacrament holy orders, that's going beyond the Word of God. The Seventh-day Adventist telling you that you can't eat pork because it was outlawed under the Old Testament is going beyond the Word of God. That's extreme. We do not want that. It, you are no closer to God by being too extreme than by being too lax. They're both erroneous ditches. And I would remind you that the denomination that gave the Lord Jesus Christ the most difficulty in his life were the Pharisees, whom the Apostle Paul said were the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. They were the most conservative Israelites. But they caused him the most trouble. It was their doctrine that Jesus would say to his apostles, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You are not better than the Bible. If you take something that God has allowed and say, well, I'm not going to do that and be better than the Bible, you are wrong. You are not the Bible. And you don't have real wisdom. You have man-made wisdom of your own making. The wisdom that is here in verse 19 is the wisdom that understands the, the providence of God in adversity and prosperity that verses 13 through 15 told us about. And then it knows the difference between overmuch righteous and over-wisdom that verses 16 through 18 tell us about. The wisdom here in verse 19 is the fear of the Lord immediately given to us in the 18th verse. The man who fears the Lord shall come forth of them all. See, here's the man who wins in every situation. He's got paramount wisdom. He's got wisdom that sees the affairs of life and knows that God's hand is involved. This is a man that sees the crown of the road and doesn't want to go in either ditch. I hate both ditches. If you lay a burden upon anyone that God hasn't laid there, even in the name of conservatism, you are a sinner. Because you have laid a man-made rule upon men. And that is forbidden in Colossians chapter 2. Alcohol may make people drunk. 
Beer, wine, and hard liquor, strong drink, may make people drunk in some indirect way. Drunkenness is a sin of the heart. If you condemn the stuff, it shows how ignorant and wicked you are. Because drunkenness is not caused by the stuff. Drunkenness is caused by the heart that drinks too much of the stuff. Gluttony is not a problem of pizza. Pizza is a problem for gluttons. Because the sin is the man who eats too much pizza. The sin is not the pizza. But now see, the ones that outlaw wine and beer would never think of outlawing bread because they're inconsistent. Not because they're wise. Because they're fools. They outlaw beer and wine because they think it causes drunkenness. Drunkenness, nothing that goes in a man's mouth can defile the man. What comes out of a man's heart defiles a man. What you put in a man's mouth goes into the toilet. It's called the draft in the Bible. That's D-R-A-U-G-H-T. It can't defile a man. It's how much you put in, and that's a cause of the heart. No one ever forces it down your throat, whether it's beer or pizza. A wise man is able to enjoy both. Having a beer with his pizza. With pepperoni on that pizza, praise the Lord. The Lord is good. We are to richly enjoy all things that the Lord has given us. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise. This is the man who fears the Lord, understands God's providence, and steers between the two extremes of being lascivious and being like a Pharisee. And no more on that. That was last Sunday. That wisdom strengthens and gives gives an advantage over ten mighty men. You make those ten mighty men the men you are intimidated by the most. If you have the fear of the Lord, can steer between extremes of Christianity, and you understand the providence of God in life, you are better. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise. More than ten mighty men which are in the city. You can do all the push-ups you want. It is such a vain and foolish Waste of your time. Do a few. But if you're going to do push-ups, make sure you read the Word of God ten times as long. Because you don't want to just be one of the mighty men in the city. You want to be a man with wisdom. If you're going to go train for a marathon and waste hundreds of hours in training, make sure that you read the Bible ten times as long. You're going to have to give up your job in order to do so. Because you've picked an exercise activity that takes too much time. And to do, to read the Word of God more than that, it's going to wipe out your life. Because, and the reason I'm saying all that is, wisdom is more important than strength. So we ought to put the emphasis on wisdom. What are you doing to get wisdom? It takes study. It takes reading the Word of God. It takes exercising yourself every day. What word of God applies to this that I just read in the newspaper? This that I just heard from a colleague at work or that I just saw on the Internet or that I just heard on the radio, what Bible verse answers it? And if you can't think of it, call me. If I can't think of it, I'll call someone else. We'll get an answer. Let's learn wisdom because wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men. Verse 20 is there to explain that there is no ditch that you can head toward and be closer to God because there is not a just man upon earth. 
If you think you're going to show yourself just, that you don't have sin because you've cut off and will not drink beer and wine, you've missed the boat. You've gone into a ditch. That's what I believe verse 20 is there for. It's still following up on the extremes of verse 16 of being over-righteous and over-wise. Because there isn't a man that doesn't sin. The Apostle Paul knew he was going to sin in the future. He said, with my flesh I serve the law of sin, but with the mind the law of God. He knew that. And so to think that that isn't true of you, you have fallen into a ditch. Verse 20 is trying to keep you out of that ditch by learning wisdom that stays away from it. There is no man just upon earth that does good and sins not, no matter how many rules he may give himself. The wise man that is stronger than this man that thinks he doesn't sin is the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways and knows he's not perfect and simply takes the... He understands that beer and wine with a wicked loose heart are dangerous. That pizza and bread and Krispy Kreme donuts with a wicked heart are dangerous. But they in themselves are not dangerous. Wisdom. There's not a just man upon earth. Well, if there's not a just man upon earth, then we're all sinners and we're all condemned before God. How should we live? With wisdom. That's how. How should we live? With the fear of God, described in verse 18. Because this man will come forth of them all. The Lord knows we're all sinners. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He pities us like a, a good father pities his children. He knows that about us. So how should we live? In the fear of the Lord, verse 18, and with wisdom that steers between extremes and knows what the fear of the Lord really means, as verse 19 tells us. You are advantaged greater than the mighty. That's how you deal before God. Amen. How do we live before God? We are wise to recognize His providence. We are wise to stay away from human traditions of extremes. And that advantages us more than ten men. We know that we're not just before God, except by a Savior. And therefore, all we can give God is to live in the fear of the Lord and to live wisely. Amen. You, that's before God. The next two verses are, what do we do with people? What do you do with people? Don't let them bother you by what they think or say. I remember in school being taught something that smacks awfully close to this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Would to God we all believe that second grade ditty. You know, if we believe that, we wouldn't get upset when people say things about us. This is, in, in four verses, we're told how to live in a pleasing way before God and men. How to live successfully with God and men. I've already told you, verses 19 and 20, about living before the Lord. Verses 21 and 22 are how to live with others. Ignore what they say and think. Because all that matters is pleasing God. The fear of the Lord is not the fear of man. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare so that you can't really fear the Lord. If you worry about what people think and say about you, then you are missing the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is such that there's only one being I want to please. It's the God of heaven. And I don't care what men think about me. There is, verse 21, also, in it, it's connected. That word also is there. I'm not going to draw a line between verses 20 and 19. Because it says also, after dealing with God by wisdom, here is wisdom in dealing with other people. Don't worry about what they think or say about you. 
It's called peer pressure, and we all worry about it. But we shouldn't worry about it. And I'm not commending worrying about it. I'm condemning worrying about it, like this verse does. Don't worry about what people say about you. And Solomon's going to give you a little practical piece of advice. If we were to have all the innermost thoughts we've ever had about each other pulled up and thrown on a screen right now, if any word that we've ever said in the vehicle going home from church was to be pulled up on a screen right now, we would know that there is no reason for us to worry about what others have said about us, but there is every reason in the world for them to worry about what we have said about them. Oh, wouldn't it be terrible? And so the wise man tells us, why don't you go ahead and pull that screen down, turn the projector on, and take a look at what you've said about others. And in the light of that, you can discount it all because you know that you get hot in a moment and you say things that about one minute later you regret. And if you're really calloused, it takes five. Maybe that night when you're in bed, you why did I say that? And so if we know that about ourselves, then we can blow it off when we hear it from others. Isn't that great practical advice? That's wisdom. A man that has that kind of wisdom is not going to be destroyed by someone saying something about him. You give me a mighty man. Imagine whatever you need to imagine. If you've got to imagine somebody with 24-inch biceps that can curl 175, 10 reps for several sets, then go ahead and imagine that. But that man with that strength, or a whole football team, because it says 10, we might as well pick a football team. Pick a whole football team. Somebody says something about them and they get all upset. If you've got the wisdom of God so that you know you're pleasing God, you know you can't be perfect, but you know you're not going to go to extremes, and you've got enough wisdom to ignore what other people say about you, you are strengthened more than ten mighty men. Because they get irritated because somebody says something about them. Let me say it again. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I used to say that all the time in the second grade because we were all saying that to each other because we were all calling each other names. Shame. Shame. Sorry. I, I want you to live out your days in ignorance. Ignorance about your children. But I know you already know. Thank, isn't that beautiful? Before God and men, wisdom saves us and strengthens us and gives us an advantage. You can please God and please men. You'll never be perfect before God. And people are always going to question, criticize, and say things about you. Just ignore it because you know you've said some pretty nasty things about other people yourselves. He just throws that in to give you a very practical way to forget what people say of you because you certainly don't want God to remember what you said about them. Now we come to the next lesson. Verses 23 through 29. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things. And to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman, whose heart is snares and nets, and her hands as bands. 
Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. May the Lord bless the reading of this second lesson, and we will spend our time on this lesson for the rest of today. I want you to remember two words. Affinity and polygamy. You know polygamy. Polygamy is having more than one wife at the same time. Poly means many. Monogamy, mono means one. Monogamy is having one wife. Polygamy is having many wives. You know what that means. This passage is going to counter that because it's one of the inventions that men have added to life that countered what God created and ordained in the Garden of Eden. The other word is affinity. And I want you to get comfortable with the word affinity and to love it in its Bible sense. Affinity means to marry. It means to join together very closely by marriage. It's used three times in our Bibles. You've already had it read to you once, and you read it once last night. For those of you that read Ezra chapter 9 last night, you read the word affinity in Ezra 9.14, and it was defined in verse 2, where it said, The holy seed have mingled themselves with the peoples of these countries. Affinity is marrying unbelievers. It's marrying the children of the devil. It's marrying carnal, rebellious Christians. It's marrying outside of the faith. It's marrying poorly as measured spiritually. Affinity. You heard our brother read 1 Kings chapter 3. Immediately in the first verse it said that Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh. And how did he make that affinity with Pharaoh? He married Pharaoh's daughter. And then our brother went on to read about how in those days, because they didn't have a house of the Lord, Solomon was offering sacrifices in the high place. And then if you were to continue reading, it was in Gibeon where the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, what can I do for you? And that's when he was given his wisdom and his riches and all the other blessings God gave him. I want you to notice that Solomon had already set the snare for the rest of his life in verse 1 of chapter 3. He had sinned against the God of heaven by an invention, affinity with wicked neighbors. Those neighbors were to be killed and annihilated. They weren't to touch the Egyptians. To marry Pharaoh's daughter was a terrible choice, a sinful choice, a wicked choice. It doesn't matter how loving she was. It doesn't matter how pretty she was. It doesn't matter how good she could cook or how good she could look. He had already set himself up to fall. Because he had made affinity. He had married an unbeliever. I've given you two occurrences of the word. Ezra. I hope in reading Ezra 9 and 10 last night, you were able to see what a holy man is like. 
Ezra's grief should have shown you how a godly man is grieved and rivers of waters run down his cheeks when he sees the people of God turn away from the commandments of God. Did you notice that in chapter 9? Ezra was messed up. And what was he messed up about? The people of God that had been delivered out of Babylon by the mercy of God had quickly stopped following God's ways and married pagan wives. And their children had married pagan wives and they had had pagan babies by these pagan wives. And so Ezra ordained with the help of some elders there that encouraged him and gave him the idea, let's have a national day of divorce and get this all over with. And it took them two and a half months to do all the paperwork and have all the sacrifices, but they divorced every single one of their unbelieving wives and threw the children out with them and gave the wives total custody of those kids to get rid of them as well. Because the holy seed had mingled themselves with the people of the Canaanites. That's affinity. Let me give you the third example in the Bible. Anyone know the man? Jehoshaphat. One of the great kings of Judah. He made affinity with Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel, the ten tribes. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, the two tribes. Jehoshaphat took his son Jehoram and married him to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Was Athaliah a good woman? Did he marry well? Did Athaliah kill all the seed royal? Was she eventually killed by Jehoiada? The word affinity is used. 2 Chronicles 18. Look at it. 2 Chronicles 18. No, don't look at it. It's going to be read to you. Sorry, brother. Who? Sorry. Affinity between Jehoshaphat and Ahab because Jehoram, his son, married Ahab's and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Part of the nation. I want you to hear it. That was part of the nation. Those were the people of God. I thought you were defining affinity as that you had to marry a Canaanite. Oh, no. Jehoshaphat committed affinity by marrying an Israelite. How could he commit affinity by marrying an Israelite when they were all the people of God? Because that family didn't fear God enough. That's why. And you know what? God sent a prophet to Jehoshaphat to tell him there are many good things in your life. But I cannot stand the fact that you love the wicked. You should be hating them. And that is what we should learn today. We have in these verses, verses 23 through 29 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon's exploration of a subject we haven't come to yet. And that is, and all men should have wondered where this was going to appear, that if we are looking for fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, purpose, and profit in life, women should come into the equation at some point. Listen, give me a woman before you give me a vineyard. In chapter 1 and 2, he said he planted himself vineyards. I'll take the woman. He said, I built me houses. I'll still take the woman. I had herd flocks and herds. Oh, please. Give me a woman. The thing that drives men the most are women. Look at the life of Samson. Look at the lives of other men. 
the woman is God's most wonderful creation. It's not watching a, a, a flock of sheep or a herd of goats. It's not building a building. It's getting a woman. A woman is a wonderful thing God made. And so here we have a little section as Solomon is going through all the things he pursued. And he proved this matter out. And he is writing to us in his right mind for a moment. He knows he erred terribly. But do you know how evil women are? When you marry the wrong ones? Even though he knew he could not resist them and they destroyed the rest of his life. It was when he was old those women destroyed him. When he was young or in the middle of his reign, he could still write like this. We know that Ecclesiastes was not written when he was first on the throne because he didn't even have any observations and experience then. We know that because he's still writing in his right mind. We know that because he said, I builded me houses. His first house took him 13 years. His second house took him seven years. First Kings, you can read about it in chapter 6, verse 38, and chapter 7, verse 1. So we are somewhere in the middle of Solomon's reign when he had houses already built and he could sit back and look at them. My building projects didn't make me happy. And he was already up to a thousand women that he had tried in his life and couldn't find a good one among them. If you read the Song of Solomon, you'll find out that there were only 80 wives and 60 concubines. That was written earlier in his life when he was a young man full of romantic vigor for his wives. And he thought he had found one, and he wrote the Song of Solomon. That's a different time. But right here, he's writing in his right mind, but he was not able to counteract the influence of evil women because in his old age, they took him off the worship of God. Right. Here, he is with the worship of God because verse 18, he says, Those that fear the Lord shall come forth of them all. This is when he comes to women. Where do women fit into the purpose for man in life? They drive us from our loins. They drive us from our minds. They control us in our hearts to a great degree. And so Solomon has to deal with them because it's part of looking for the purpose of man under the sun. Because if you're under the sun and you're looking around, a woman is the most beautiful thing God ever created. We sing, O Lord my God, how great Thou art. And we talk about wandering through forest glades and hearing birds sing sweetly in the trees. Those are pleasant moments. Oh, but a woman is so much better. There ought to be a fifth verse. And it should talk about the women that God's made because that's what he made for Adam. When he saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, he made a help meet for Adam. And listen, that helper that he made for Adam was very suitable, fit, appropriate, and meet for Adam. She was woman, she was Eve, and she was perfect. Very briefly, watch the overall section here. In the first three verses, he is describing his intense, energetic, thorough efforts to find wisdom in some area that he could not find. Look at the first verse. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said... I will be wise, but it was far from me. For, I'm going I'm to be very quick here, but for those of you who like the logical 
details of some of these verses. Think about that for a minute. He says, all this I prove by wisdom. I'm going to be wise, but it was far from me. Now, did he prove it by wisdom or did he not? He said he proved it by wisdom. Did he get the wisdom that he was trying to get in the second half of the verse or did he not? He says he did not. So we've got a wisdom that he had, but a wisdom he didn't get. In the wisdom that he had, in order to prove all things, whether they're profitable for men or not, he was able to prove one thing, that in his fleshly wisdom he tried to find but could never find, and that was satisfaction and fulfillment in women that appealed to him visually, naturally, ordinarily outside of the law of God. Either he's wise or he's not wise. Everything I've read so far in the book of Ecclesiastes is that he had much wisdom, he found that wisdom, and he used that wisdom. But verse 23 said, he proved by wisdom that he didn't have wisdom. Now, what wisdom didn't he have? What wisdom was he looking for that he couldn't find? The next verse tells us there are some things so deep or so far away that you can't get your hands on them. What was it that he couldn't get his hands on? Because when I read 718 about the man that fears the Lord shall come forth of them all, I would say he's got his hands pretty well around that. But what doesn't he have his hands around? Watch. In verse 24, that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? So he's trying to find something. He said, I'm going to be wise in this area, and I'm going to find it out. I'm going to find out what women can do for a man. But I couldn't find it. That's what he is saying here, because the rest of the verses help us. Watch. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it? I'm emphasizing the word find. Then in verse 25, I applied mine heart to know and to search. He's looking for something and to seek out. He's looking for something, some sort of wisdom, some sort of reason of things, the reason for romance, sex, love, and marriage, and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. He went to extremes in his search to find out if a woman could make a man happy. His words that he's used so far, to find, to search, to seek out. But it was far from him. If we drop down and read the last four verses in the passage, we find in verse 26 the word find. In 27, found. In 27, find. In 28, seeketh. In 28, find not. In 28, found. In 28, not found. In 29, found. In 29, sought. He tells us what he was seeking and looking for and trying to find and couldn't find. That women, from a natural pursuit, using natural criteria to find fulfillment and happiness in them, does not work. That is the wisdom he couldn't attain to. That is what he couldn't find. And these first three verses are telling us how diligently and what, to what extremes he went to try to find if women could make him happy. And they emphasize to us the weight of what is about to come. And the conclusion starts in verse 26. 23, 24, and 25 are emphasizing the effort he put into this. Listen, a thousand princesses are quite a few women. And they were princesses. And they ruined his life. His life was ruined at this point already by them because he knew that they had, he had missed the boat terribly. Not one good one among them. And then, for the next 20 years of his life, these women took him down 
until he burned David's grandchildren to Molech. That's what you get for marrying too many and unbelievers. They ruined him. And he already could feel it right here that he had missed the boat because his soul was still seeking for something that he couldn't find. Are you, are, am I connecting these verses together for you so that you see the emphasis? Amen. He is laying on us men. Listen, men, I did the best I could. I tried a thousand of them. I tried folly and madness with them. I applied myself to know everything there was to know about women. And let me tell you, he could have given... A few fireside chats, couldn't he have? Do you know what kind of women he married? He married a bunch of gold diggers from the exotic nations around the nation of Israel that wanted to get their fingers into his wealth. Their daddies were emailing them every single day of their lives, telling them to get in the sack with Solomon that night and get their fingers on his treasures. Do you know what kind of pressure that man was under? Do you know what kind of jealousy there is when there's a thousand women? You put, put a thousand cats in one cage. You put a thousand women together. Do you know what kind of jealousy was raging in his house? They all wanted to, they all wanted to bear the heir to Solomon's kingdom. Listen, a man's only good for one woman. Any woman can whip any man any time. Poor Solomon. It's a fantasy of weak men who ever think about polygamy. Because they're weak in the sense that their standards for how a man should treat a woman is so low that they think they can do it to two. If their standards were ever at the level that God gives in the Bible, there's only one woman that you can have. And that's the wife that you've married because she already is more than you can handle. Check with me afterwards if you don't know what I'm talking about. The older you are, the better. This is the word of the Lord. Solomon tells us how much he tried to find out the role of love, sex, and marriage in fulfilling his life, and he missed the boat. He said his soul was still looking, and he hadn't found it in verse 28. Every one of you in here that have married a believing wife, that fears God, loves Jesus Christ, trembles at the Bible, is loyal to you and loves you and comes to church with you, you have something that Solomon Never had. That is incredible. No wonder Solomon would say, listen to what he would say. This to him was a dream that he never got to have that he wants you to have. Live joyfully with the wife. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, All the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Solomon didn't have it, and he tells us we can have it, but he mentions the wife, not the wives. He tried a thousand. He had 700 official, formal wives and 300 secondary wives called concubines. A concubine was a wife. She was just an inferior wife that didn't have a piece of the action. She wasn't going to get the inheritance. Her, her boys turned out more like slaves. Her children were considered more like slaves than they were sons or heirs to the throne. That's the, that's the difference. A concubine, he still married them. He just didn't shack them up in a harem without any marriage. They were just secondary. That's what a concubine is throughout the Scriptures. Right. 
a second-class wife that didn't have the rights of the first wife or, the, or other wives that had rights to the children to be the heirs of his inheritance. All this, if I prove by wisdom, he said in verses 23 through 25, I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. He never got close to having a loving, wonderful relationship like we're able to have with one Christian wife because he loved many strange women. First Kings chapter 11 tells us he loved many strange women. In those two words were his two errors, his two sins, many and strange. He had been forbidden to have many wives because in Deuteronomy 17, God knowing that kings were really the only ones that could afford polygamy, God warned and told kings they couldn't have multiple wives. That's Deuteronomy 17, 17. Wives are expensive. Solomon's wives were particularly expensive because they had expensive tastes, because they were princesses. And though he had 700 of them, he had sinned by many and then strange women. He married the exotic women of the pagan Canaanite nations that had been left round about Israel. And if you can read the list in 1 Kings 11, we're going to hear it as we come into our second service. But these first three verses are the effort that he put into it, but he couldn't find it. He applied himself, and he couldn't get there. He even used the wickedness of folly. He explored it, because a thousand is folly. A thousand is madness. And unbelievers is folly because it's contrary to the word of God. And Solomon tried it all. And his conclusion was, I find more death, more bitter than death, the woman. A woman can hurt you from the inside out in a way that death cannot. Death is short, death is bodily, and death ends. A woman can hurt you in your heart, in your soul and spirit, in your mind. For year after year after year after year. It's far worse than death. And so he said so here. This is not women in general. And if ever, since I met some of you in 1984, if I have ever left the impression that Ecclesiastes 7.26 is talking about women in general, I withdraw that entirely and completely because it is not. It is speaking about the women that he tried. Unbelievers and too many of them. There are many noble women. We had it read to us from Acts chapter 17 today already. The Bible's full of them. If we were to be fair and honest, there might be more good women in the Bible than there are good men. We have to keep appealing to Joseph over and over again. There were women that were faithful to their husbands. Millions of them. Old Testament and New Testament. These were the women Solomon messed with. I find more bitter than death the woman. It's the thousand that he counted through in verse 28 and analyzed them one by one. They were pagan whores. They were gold diggers. They wanted to get into his inheritance. He was marrying them for political reasons. Their hearts were snares and nets. Their hearts were not loving, adoring, reverencing, and helping wives. They were trying to trap him. They used their hands and every other part of their body, hands being synecdoche. Do you know what a synecdoche is? It's a figure of speech in the English language when we use a part of a person to describe the whole person. When a sailor says, all hands on deck, do you look down the stairway and see hands coming up? Or do you see sailors coming up? It's synecdoche. We use a... Listen, hands aren't all a woman uses. 
But her body and her beguiling, seductive, enticing, deceitful spirit and words she used. Her heart was snares and nets, and her hands were as bands. And do you know what he tells us right here? The man who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Do you know what those words mean? The man who pleases God. That's the man who keeps God's commandments will be delivered from these women. The man who keeps God's commandments will not marry outside the Lord. The man who keeps God's commandments will marry one woman. The man who keeps God's commandments will love his one wife and be satisfied with her love and her breasts. Because the Bible tells him to do that. And the man who follows God's word and pleases God by following his word will be saved from ever being taken advantage of by those women. But a sinner, the man who wants to say, well, I can get away with this, or the Bible doesn't apply to this part of my life, that man is going down. And Solomon knew it firsthand. Affinity and polygamy. Since polygamy is illegal in these United States, we will emphasize affinity in our second assembly. We and our children must marry in the Lord. Amen. I want to thank my six children from the bottom of my heart and for their mother for marrying in the Lord. And I want to thank the six that married them for married, having married them in the Lord. Amen. It is one of the greatest blessings that Sherry and I have together. I am so thankful that when I was 14 years old in the 8th grade, that my father was a Neanderthal caveman when it came to parties and dances. And limited Johnny as much as he could. Johnny got into enough trouble because Johnny was exceedingly wicked. But I'm thankful for my mother and my father who rained on my parade of rock and roll music and tried to limit my ungodly friends who were so convicted and provoked and hateful of the public school system that they started a private school just to try to save their children and went through enormous effort and labor to have that school to save their children. I'm thankful for that because I'm thankful I married the little girl sitting next to you by the grace of God. You and she know the other girls and thank God. We have got to marry in the Lord. Our children must marry in the Lord. Our grandchildren must marry in the Lord. We're going to look at the verses. We're going to look at the ways. We're going to make sure that we are committed to doing this. And all you young people that aren't married yet, don't even let your mind think about not marrying in the Lord. And when I say in the Lord, that doesn't mean in the eternal phase, legal phase, vital phase, or final phase. It means in the practical phase. It means, do they fear God independently, love Jesus Christ, and tremble before a King James Bible? Anything less than that is not good enough, and you are making affinity with destruction. A Christian who minds earthly things is the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. We don't marry them, even if they're in this church. If you do not handle a power cord ripped from a jigsaw properly, the Bible says in Matthew 18, 17, and 18 that you are to be treated like a heathen man and a publican. That is how tight we're going to draw it. And do you know what somebody says? You people at the Church of Greenville, you must believe in inbreeding. I love it. 
Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right. Oh, yes, I love inbreeding. Absolutely. Did you pay attention this morning? Or were you still thinking about the Mormons putting a hurting on the Bruins? Did you pay attention this morning? Did Abraham inbreed? Who did he marry? His sister. Who did Isaac marry? His cousin. Who did Jacob marry? His niece. They married in the family. Did you notice how Abraham and Isaac, regarding their sons, sent either a servant or the son himself back to their own family to marry from their family? That's inbreeding. And God blessed it and praised it to the high heaven and said, I know Abraham, that he will command his children in his household and they will keep the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord was to marry those that feared the Lord. All Rebecca had to do was hear that this man is a representative of Abraham, the friend of God, and he wants me to come and marry his son. The matter is obviously of the Lord because of the circumstances at the well. I'm on my way. Right. Mama comes crying. Won't you stay 10 days? To ha- we can have a 10 day party to say goodbye. Are you kidding? That'd be 10 days before I can get in the tent with Isaac. She feared the Lord. So did Rachel. The words of Jonathan are ended for the first assembly. And the words of Jonathan, I hope, are true to the words of God. The Bible here is very plain. Solomon tried many women, and he was a total failure at it. His soul never found what you have sitting right beside you right now. You can pull out a hymnal, and you might as well go ahead and pull out your burgundy hymnals and turn to number 332. But you can open up a hymnal and hold it with your wife, and she's going to sing right along with you. Do you think that Pharaoh's daughter sang the songs of Zion with Solomon? He never found what we have. May the Lord bless his word to the conviction of every father in this assembly and every young man and woman in this assembly to marry in the Lord.